Have you ever loved your headshots? Would you rather go to the dentist than get your professional picture taken? For many people, it's a toss-up. They never like images of themselves, and sessions are awkward. If you're done with the standard headshot, it's time for the best. It's time for high-end headshots. Headshots you actually like. High-end headshots is a new kind of headshot experience. It's the polar opposite of being told to say cheese. Facial expression coaches produce images that resonate, images that actually look like you. Head photographer John Meadows coaches you, educates you, and takes your feedback into account as you go through the session. Visit highendheadshots.com to check out some of his work and schedule your appointment today. That's highendheadshots.com. That's highendheadshots.com. Tell them Brian sent you. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. is needed in the same way that we need friction sometimes, in the same way that we need security, right? We need bureaucracy. It provides us with the sandbox in which we need to operate in. Now that said, conditions change and sometimes bureaucracy needs to change also. One of the ways that I think leaders in government and probably elsewhere can frame this is that policies are there to prevent problems. But as things change and as risks change, we need to remember that people make policy. And so policies, in fact, can and should change. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. As Chief Information Officer in Asheville, North Carolina, he moved the city to the cloud, expanded free high-speed Wi-Fi, boosted cybersecurity, and built better relationships with residents. Last year, he joined Wake County as their new CIO. It's an area that has recently won praise for its tech efforts. I'm talking about Jonathan Feldman, and he's joining me on the show today to talk about his new role and to get a glimpse at how he approaches digital initiatives. As I mentioned, while he was in Asheville as the CIO, he led the city into becoming an early adopter of cloud-based technology, also building up their cybersecurity defenses and the diversity of IT services department. He also leveraged his relationships with Silicon Valley startups in making Asheville the first city in the nation to use AWS's cloud-based disaster recovery and worked with other agencies to bring free high-speed Wi-Fi to public housing and boosted his department's customer service rating to 90% from a low 30%. Of course, Wake County is larger than Asheville, as it's the home to the state capital, Raleigh, North Carolina, and it has an estimated population of more than 1.1 million. Part of our discussion will hinge on what he has learned about his now larger constituent base and what he's doing to support them. We also talk about the challenges that leaders in these types of roles face in trying to support such a diverse population while trying to personalize services for each resident. It's going to be a great discussion, so I'm really looking forward to getting into it. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. 
I'm excited to have you here. You spend a lot of time in in Asheville, North Carolina, obviously as as CIO for a long stretch, and now only recently have moved to Wake County, Raleigh, North Carolina. And I think anybody listening really knows that that area on the East Coast is really kind of a, a big tech corridor. I mean, some think of it as almost the Silicon Valley of the East, right? I'm curious to know, in your role as CIO, how do you view having a lot of these private technology companies so close? Is it Do you see this as an advantage for, for some of the programs you're running and some of the initiatives you have going on? It's fantastic, Brian. You know, and number one, let me just say, I love living in Raleigh. After living in Asheville that long, I thought I was ruined for living anywhere else, but I really do love living in Raleigh and it's a great town. Uh, there's, there's tech, 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 tech everywhere, but it's also frankly, one of the places where civic tech and, and, uh, civic engagement have traditionally been really high. So I think that is an advantage. And being in a place where folks live, breathe, you know, walk the talk in terms of technology and outcomes is is pretty amazing. And it gives me a lot of opportunities in terms of being able to get together with folks who are really making a difference at scale. And it gives me an opportunity also to partner with some of the most amazing folks in technology. So I, I've already started some of those conversations and uh, can, and I'm sure I will continue. <laughs> yeah. You, you said that traditionally civic engagement is really high in Raleigh. Since, I mean, you've, you've been there for about five or six months. Why do you think that is? What have you found? Well, I'm speaking historically, right? Because Open Raleigh has been uh, a part of Code for America. There's been a very active, what they call Code for America brigade here in Raleigh. And, and so those folks, I think, elevate what folks normally look at as civic engagement and they, they take it to a new level. They say, well, what does the data tell us? And so when you talk to those folks, they make fantastic partners because they're not just saying we have a problem. They're saying we have a problem and here's what the data says about the problem. And here's the methodology that we would suggest and then you get into a conversation and you say to them, well, that may be true from your perspective, but did you know that in government that we have to do X, Y, Z by regulatory mandate or whatever it is? And so you get into a very nuanced and very informed conversation that often gets to a better place quicker. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So being in this space, I think, and I've had a lot of conversations with with leaders that have been on this show, um, and one of the most common topics we've actually touched on is talent, um, workforce issues, talent. But I think in, in light of kind of the situation that we're in right now in the form of kind of layoffs from technology companies, et cetera, it, it could be viewed from a government perspective as an opportunity, right? Um, and I also- Opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> and I think for, for, for folks in the technology space in the private sector, I think there's a lot of people that have looked at 
the government as a, you know what, I want to, I want to go spend some time in government. And this could be a perfect opportunity for them to do that. But you said it's an opportunity. So I'm guessing you see it that way as well. I do. I will also say that it's not for everyone. And specifically, there are government IT technology, digital teams that operate very much like private sector, where you go to work, you do stuff, you go home. But I would say that the most effective government digital teams are those that really have a heart for the mission. So I don't want to say that it's an opportunity for folks without a heart for the mission. Maybe that's true in some government technology shops. That would not be true in mine. But if you have a heart for tech, if you have a heart for uh, government service, and if you have a heart for doing work that has meaning and purpose, this is a fantastic time to get into government. I think that's very true. It's more than just delivering an app or or a line of code, but it's really about what that delivery means to right. the people that you're delivering it to. You've been grinding, and and all the bosses get gigantic payouts and get to buy beach houses and you find that frustrating come on we have a place for you there won't be these gigantic bonuses that you would get in the private sector but you also won't be frustrated i mean you will be frustrated probably right <laughs> frustrating occasionally but you won't have that frustration of of doing your best for nothing for for no purpose except for making the company bigger I mean, so speaking of frustrating, one of the things, and it, it popped in my head as, as you were kind of making the pitch for government, um, one of the books I read recently, because I had, had the author on, was uh, Hack Your Bureaucracy. Um, yeah, written by Nick Sinai and Marina Nitza. And it, I'm curious to know, actually, if I don't know if you've read the book or not. I have not. But you've, you've spent a lot of time in government, so I'm guessing you understand how to navigate bureaucracy. One of the things that the book talks about is bureaucracy isn't necessarily a four-letter word, right? You need to have it to yes. be able to facilitate things. It's all about how you navigate it. Have you found any hacks of, of your own or best practices that help you navigate what you're doing to get some of, to some of these outcomes? First, let me say that the book is absolutely right, that bureaucracy is needed in the same way that we need friction sometimes, in the same way that we need security, Right. We need bureaucracy. It provides us with the sandbox in which we need to operate in. Now, that said, conditions change, and sometimes bureaucracy needs to change also. One of the ways that I think leaders in government, and probably elsewhere, can frame this is that policies are there to prevent problems, but as things change and as risks change, we need to remember that people make policy. And so policies, in fact, can and should change. So that's, I, I think, a good way of framing it so that you don't just go into work and say, well, the policy says we can't do this, so we're dead in the water. That's not true. Which is why I think... If you are really invested into making great outcomes happen for your community, and if you have the credibility of delivering great technology services, all of a sudden you have the credibility 
to say, hey, look, we're doing a great job at XYZ. We could do an even better job if this policy somehow got modified and to, to keep us safe, continue to keep us safe, but also get out of our way where it doesn't need to be in our way. Does that make sense, Brian? It makes absolute sense. And, and I want to talk about that community a little bit because um, it kind of gets to the heart of what you said before, having a heart for the service. You've been in Wake County for about, again, five or six months. What have you learned about the community and some of the needs of the people that you're serving in your role? Believe it or not, it's it's been four months and change, right? So you're close. But uh, I, I've done a lot of listening and learning, which I think is is crucial. And we've made some operational changes that I don't want to bore you with. But one of the really fascinating things I've learned about the community is we have a program called Familiar Faces, where we're seeking to understand why folks continue to show up again and again to the same mental health facility, to the same, uh, or they get justice involved, or they're houseless again. And so there's been a discussion about, can we use data and data tools to not only better understand that, but to make true positive change with that? Because obviously, if someone doesn't keep getting justice involved, if they don't keep having encounters with uh, emergency, mental health, etc., we've just made not only that individual's life better, we've made our community better. So I'm really excited about the opportunity to bring data to bear to really make lasting change on that front. It's early days and, and we're still we're still looking at it, but I'm really excited about that. So I, I've spent a lot of time in, in the CX space, especially um, uh, focused on obviously government and, and citizen experience. And one of the things that I hear all the time is it's so different from the private sector because the ROI is just so different, right? And you can't really show the ROI. And and I absolutely disagree with that. And that program is a really good example because even if you even if you remove the mission for for example and and you don't think about the fact that you are changing people's lives, which I think is incredible. It's a great program. I love that. But just by integrating some of these systems, leveraging the data to understand some of these things, you could be really reducing the number of interactions maybe you're having with them while at the same time giving them better experiences, right? Supporting them in a more meaningful way, but you're reducing cost on on the government, which is then reducing tax money. So I, I, I think that's an ROI in and of itself, but beyond just what you would do in the private sector, it's not just a monetary ROI. It's also the idea that you are making this person's life better. So that program, I think, is a great example of that. Indeed. So, so another thing, I mean, when we think about the way a program like that would be facilitated, when you take a look at like a platform approach, how, how important is it for you to have all these disparate systems kind of connected and, and talking to each other so you can get some of that data and, and create opportunities like this program and others. So I, I think it's important not to fetishize the technology, right? 
what comes first and what must always come first, not just with this, but really any technology program is what are the stakeholders thinking? What are their processes? What are their needs? What are their problems? And specifically, not generally, but specifically, how can technology solutions help them out? So it's really tempting to throw out uh, generic solutions and say, hey, you know, if we do this, then, then, that, then everything would be great. But maybe that's not true. Maybe a very light touch is needed from technology. And what was really needed is for stakeholders to come together and say, well, let's just use the systems we have, right? And that's what I mean by don't fetishize the technology. I, I think you have to first really understand what about the process is not working. Because if you don't understand that and you just heap more technology on top of it, you're not going to solve anything. And, and you probably will not solve things in a very expensive way. And I think that's one of the challenges that I've seen with government is the idea that, especially like process mining, for example, the idea that sometimes they don't know where their blind spots are. I mean, companies have that same problem too, where you need to kind of dig and understand that. But it, you said something really interesting there about not, not doing high level, but really specifically getting to the root of the problem. In your experience as a, a CIO in government, how do you support all of these citizens that that require your help at scale when you're looking at things specifically? I think you don't try to address it at scale because when you're at scale, you're at 100,000 feet. And most problems are not solvable from 100,000 feet. I think you can discern trends, you can discern what's happening, but to actually solve a problem, you have to get to ground level. And that requires a lot of work. And in, for example, a, a really benign example, redesigning an organization's website or a, a city's website, for example, um, you don't do that at scale. You do that by running a lot of people through use, user testing, not a lot of people, but a certain amount of people through usability testing and looking at what their journey is through the site and noticing where there's frustration, where things are taking a long time for them to accomplish goals and that type of thing. But I don't think you do it at 100,000 feet. You, you do a lot of engagements at street level. And that's why I think folks want to take shortcuts. Because if you just do something really big and at 100,000 feet, it feels like you've been effective. But have you? Generally, I find that you, you're not, right? If you just decide unilaterally, hey, we're just going to... Uh, we're going to copy philly.gov and we're going to put that in Asheville. That probably is not going to work because the services are different, right? The needs of, of folks on the ground are different. It makes total sense. It's understanding. I mean, you talked about community. It's understanding your community and what their needs are. Um, it's a, another th reason why the data is so important and taking the time to strategically kind of understand 
exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish. So I think, I think that's a really great point. And I, I think that was some really good advice for, for anybody listening, who's trying to figure out strategies and approaches on, on how to tackle some of these things. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned trends. I'm curious to know, as you look across the, the next few years, what are some of the trends that you see happening in, in the government technology space? Any predictions or, or thoughts around that? Well, I, I, you know, number one, I, I, uh, think there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of smoke around chat GPT and now Bard. I think it's one of those things that people are fetishizing. They're saying, Oh, let me put chat GPT on, uh, recovering from malware. Let me put chat GPT on. They're probably going to put it on how to deploy an ERP. But the fact of the matter is that none of this stuff is artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, my view, does not exist right now. What we have is artificial mimicry. Uh, and artificial mimicry does not actually do what we want it to do if we're saying, hey, we want it to be intelligent. So uh, my suggestion is just to allow folks to uh, <laughs> allow folks to be intelligent and to use these tools like ChatGPT in ways where we do not think they're intelligent. And uh, science fiction writer, um, a science fiction writer just did a piece called ChatGPT is the fuzzy JPEG of the internet. And it was a great, it, it was a great piece on the limitations of ChatGPT. And I, I feel like sometimes, even though we are technologists, CIOs and other IT leaders are really here to guide our organizations past the hype we're not there to engage in the hype. That's interesting. I think you're. I think you're right. There's obviously a risk aversion to working in the government technology space too, for obvious reasons, right? You're. I mean, we've, we've talked about this on the show a lot, dealing with taxpayer money, et cetera. But, but I think that's a really good point. I mean, every every new shiny object doesn't require your your full attention. It's just yeah. something there that it can be a tool. Um, something that you said I thought was really interesting, and my my wife's actually a, a STEM teacher in um, in Prince William County uh, for for K through five, mm -hmm. and she looks at st like STEM education as really being able to understand these technologies so you can kind of work alongside them as you grow, and I think to me that's the whole point. These technologies aren't meant to overtake our roles or dramatically change everything, but they're meant to be pieces that help support the process. Do you see things like chat GPT or other technologies being able to help facilitate that kind of on the side? I think uh, RPA is another good example, right? Are, are there other things that you're seeing that are really helping propel the future of government work? Let me go back to something you said, Brian, because I, I, I think I need to say something about it. You said in government, we need to be risk averse, or maybe you didn't say that, but a lot of folks talk about not taking on risk. I don't think it's a question of not taking on risk. I think it's about taking on the right risks. Yeah. And if you don't take on any risks, you're probably not doing it right. 
But the question is, what risks are you taking on? What are you risking? And, and how are you approaching it? So in, I think a lot of CIOs, for example, or the more innovative ones, tend to use startups. Well, would we use a startup for our ERP? No, we would not do that. But back in the day, did we use Trello? Did we use Basecamp as a project management tool? Yeah, we did because project management is not that big a risk to put, you know, your, your project data into. Because most of the time, those mid-sized projects are over reasonably quickly. They're ephemeral. They don't last forever. And you can take a risk on that. Um, but I think it's a matter of gauging the risk. So as far as ChatGPT goes, I think organizations would be insane to put to task chat gpt to do something you know highly risky but if you're just going to uh, mess around with it and then independently validate the conclusions okay you know that's to me that's a training exercise that's that's seeing how it works no i mean i think that makes total sense i think the other piece as you think about what you're investing in i think the cloud has changed a lot of things too i mean not not just in barrier to entry, but I think the interoperability aspect of a lot of different applications now being in the cloud has given um, folks like you and others to the ability to maybe diversify what they might go after. So, so you might be able to bring on something that is a smaller application because it will plug in and speak to everything else. So I think the cloud is really supported in that. I, I mean, would you agree? Yeah, I agree. You know, the, the, um, the other thing that helps out is the availability of APIs and, and the ability yeah. to integrate smaller, less risky, or, you know, smaller applications that are high value that don't present or maybe present a calculated risk, right? But it's not your entire chalupa you know you're not you're not uh, putting everything at risk you're putting a very small piece of something at risk and then using apis and whatnot to integrate it so is there a technology out there that that you're looking at that does interest you that you think there could be applicability in a more mainstream way or do you think a lot of it is similar to kind of chat gpt where it can be a little bit superficial and and might have an impact maybe i, I honestly think chat gpt could have you know, a lot of uh, interesting application, right? I mean, I've seen folks using it to do preliminary research. Uh, I think that's great as long as you understand that it's preliminary and it might save you hours and hours and hours. I think that's the interesting part. Now, if you said something like, you know, cryptocurrency, if you said something like blockchain, I would say, Brian, I, I have just turned that over and over and over in my head. I have no idea how that might be useful to anybody ever, but generally I don't, uh, I, I don't DOA technologies like that. And I've not, I don't feel that way about chat GPT. Yeah. I feel like, you know, you just got to find the right place for, for chat GPT or large learning mod models or language learning modules or whatever. 
um, it's just not for everything. And, and you have to not think of it as intelligent because it is not. It can't be creative. Don't put it in, ask it to be creative. It's not going to do anything innovative. But can it regurgitate the web in a summary? Yeah, it can do that. So one of the things they're using chat GPT for, I say they uh, and, and companies especially is kind of for chatbot function um, from a customer experience perspe perspective. And I think CX is getting a lot of attention right now in government, especially um, on the heels of kind of the, the height of the pandemic. I'm curious to know your, your thoughts around customer experience and have, have, you changed your approach from maybe pre-pandemic to, to now, let's just call it post-pandemic kind of time. I think the world has changed its approach, and I've been really happy to see that um, because my approach has always been put the human first, and I think mm -hmm. the pandemic has helped a lot of other folks get there, so I'm really happy about that. But fundamentally putting the human first, both in employee experience as well as customer experience remains where I'm at. And so getting the employee experience to be right so that we can then deliver superior customer experience is I think where some organizations are getting to, but that is a formula that has stood me very well over the years. Are there, as you've gotten to Wake County and kind of integrated yourself, are there some some CX programs uh, that you've seen deployed there that that you think have been pretty innovative and pretty impressive? Well, I think it's pretty impressive when organizations actually do it. You know, when they actually implement customer service. Uh, at Wake County IS, we are implementing a you know a, a CX solution next month. Um, Wake County itself is, I think, a really innovative employer. It, you know, I can hire from 10 states remotely and, and, uh, hopefully growing all the time. Um, and Wake County also has a huge focus on employee being, and because it has a huge focus on employee well-being, um, we're going to be embarking on an employee experience uh, measuring program as well. So all of those things, I think, point to caring about employee experience, caring about customer experience, because a funny thing happens when you don't measure it, nothing. And a funny thing happens when you do measure it, you take steps to improve it constantly. So a, a couple of things I want to unpack there real quick. One, as you were talking about this, and, and let me preface this by saying, I couldn't agree more. The, I've believed for a long time that really solid employee experience drives really satisfactory customer experience. And it sounds like that's your approach within Wake County. is Because I heard you not talk a, about a, a number of employees. Your wide approach. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard you talk about a number of EX type of things and focuses internally. And I think... In my head, I'm thinking, well, that's fantastic because you understand the value that comes from treating your employees well, giving them the tools to succeed and caring about your employees because that then transfers over to the customers they're serving. Absolutely. And then the, the, other, the other piece of that, when you're talking about measuring, this is, I, I guess this is a question. Do you think 
and this isn't not this isn't specific to government, but just in general, do you think there is a fear um, which is driving some of the unwillingness to to measure kind of CSAT because they're worried that they're going to not get the the answers they want? I think that could be, but I will say that if you don't measure, then you can't make things better. And so if you don't measure, you must think you're perfect. And last time I checked, I am not perfect. And I've not ever met anyone who is perfect. So I can't speak to other people's motivation, but I will say that if you don't measure, then you must not have uh, either a mandate or a desire to be less imperfect, right? To improve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I'm quoting uh, an Ogden Nash poem, which is uh, the secret to perfection is easy to express, to err and err and err again, but less and less and less. And so it's, it's just that continuous improvement cycle. You're not getting to perfect, but you will be less imperfect. I think that's a great, that's a great way to put it. It's kind of the, the, the pursuit of perfection, even though you'll never attain it, but you're always trying to improve. Exactly. So I think that's, that's great. Um, one last question before I give you some, some time for some final thoughts. You've obviously been in this type of role for a long time. You have a lot of experience in, in doing this. What are some of the things that you think keep you up at night and maybe keep other CIOs at night? Um, maybe you're sleeping great. Maybe maybe it's it's not um, uh, the challenges that that get you. But are, are there things that do um, overall kind of give you some some unease within these roles? You know, I think it's the usual stuff, but I try not to. I, I try not to frame it as what keeps me up at night, right? I try to frame it as what opportunities do we have in front of us. And for example, I think every organization has an opportunity in front of it to make security better by better engaging with employees. It's what I call security engagement. You know, we talk about employee engagement all the time, but what about security engagement? What if instead of looking at the end user as the weakest link, we think of them as the best defense? And it's a, you know, it's a flipping on its head kind of thing. But I think that matters a lot in terms of how you respond, right? Because if you, if you say, oh my goodness, these thousands of end users, they really keep me up at night. You take a much more combative approach to that. And if you just change the language and say, how can there be an opportunity for me? You say, well... How can I give them better tools? Win-win. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great approach to not just anyone in your role, but I think that's a great approach for anyone um, engaging in anything kind of deemed challenging. Is kind of have a fr- have a frame uh, a framework in your mind of how you want to be successful, not mitigate um, failure. Yeah. Right? Um, so. Jonathan, I really appreciate the time. Any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners today? Oh, I think we've left plenty, haven't we? 
I think so. I mean, I, I can tell you, I always, I always learn a lot from my guests. It's one of the reasons I love doing this and that has definitely happened today. So I appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.